Hi, this is Zoe, and this is the Zoe Rath Leadership Podcast. Welcome to the show. If you're a first-time listener, cool to have you here. And if you're a return listener, thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. It's a delight to bring you great experts and great leaders to share their insight, as well as the occasional thought nugget from yours truly. If you like the show and want to get up your karma for the week, then go to ratethispodcast.com slash Zoe ratethispodcast.com slash Zoe. It gives you quick, short tips on how to rate the show, and it really does help get the message out there. So uh, karma and gratitude to you if you go out of your way, and I know it's a bit of a bother to do so to rate this podcast. Very much appreciated. Very much appreciated is also uh, today's guest. We're talking about culture today, and there's a couple of questions I had about culture that he answers beautifully. The questions are, have you ever wondered about what turns a good culture, apart from the absence of the things that you should do, are there other things that you might be doing in your culture that could turn it upside down? And what about the annual engagement survey? Like, that's a bit controversial. Like, people do it or don't do it. Is it worth it? And the other question is, should you give tangible incentives for effort at work? Sounds like a good idea, but is it really? So today's guest is Chris Dyer. He is a recognized performance expert. He's a sought-after speaker and consultant. He's the author of The Power of Company Culture, which came out in 2018. He's the founder of and CEO of People G2, a background check company that has appeared on the Inc. 5000 list of the fastest-growing companies. He did a lot of research for his latest book, and he shares some surprising insights. I'm pretty excited about it. And if you want references for the, some of the things we mentioned, the show notes are at zoeroutcom slash podcast slash Chris Dyer. Chris, like you think it's spelled, and Dyer, D-Y-E-R. Okay, let's do it. Wow, it's been a long time trying to organize this. You're all the way over in Orange County, California, and I'm so excited to have you on the show. So welcome, Chris. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a busy day over there. You've got a new book out. It's all systems go. What was the toughest thing about writing the book? You know, it's funny. Um, I don't know how much people, you know, if they really can understand what it's like to write a book. I mean, it's not like writing a paper like you did in college. It's not like anything else that you do because once it's done, it's done. And so you want it to be done right. And you want it to, to convey everything you want it to do. But what I didn't understand being this my first time writing a book was that not only did I have to write the book, but I had to get incredible feedback from my editor and friends and family and coworkers and everyone else I shared it with. Right? I mean, people would come back with this, you know, this part didn't make sense or this part was great. You should write more about this, you know, and I got so much great information that then I had to write it again. So I had to, you know, I would get a chapter, send it off, get it back, rewrite it, redo it, send it back. Re I mean, every time you thought you were done with a chapter, you had to kind of do it all over again. Yeah. And so I didn't account for that in my timing. I thought I could get this done in so many, you know, long weekends and things like that. And it turned out to be a lot longer than I thought it was going to be. And so I think that was the hardest part, right? It was just you know, you think it's going to take a certain amount of time or you can devote a certain amount of hours per week or per month. I was woefully wrong about that. Um, it took a lot more out of me than I ever thought. And I swore I would never write another one until last week when I agreed to write another one. But <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So this latest book was 
a book on culture. What's your next one going to be? The next one's going to be about how to have a remote company. So oh, cool. it's sort of the blueprint of if you want to go remote or you want to take a department or a division remote, what's that actually look like? What's that blueprint? Okay. Uh, my company was one of the first that we know of that was at, we actually went from brick and mortar to 100% remote and survived. Uh, there's quite a few examples that did it and died. Ours did it and survived. And so it's now become a big thing. And most people do it actually, they start remote, but very few companies transition remote. And I think that's a, the next big thing that's going to be happening inside of you know, organizations today. Okay. Well, I look forward to that one. So let's talk about your first baby though, <laughs> as opposed to the one that you're currently about to start gestating. Um, culture. I love the topic of culture. It's all about people stuff for me. And you had some amazing insights in, in your book around culture. And I think um, culture is affiliated with leadership. And I want to ask you a leadership question first, which is how do you define leadership? And how did you know when you were a leader? Yeah, how did I know? I think I finally admitted it to myself sometime in high school. You know, I didn't take myself as a leader, partly because I didn't really enjoy other children growing up. I really preferred adults. I liked being around people who were older than me, that could have a conversation, that had, could teach me things, that could show me things. And so my time at school, which was kids poking each other and kind of being mean and it was sort of like torture. And it wasn't until I got to high school when I guess kids sort of caught up, right? And we were more on an equal kind of playing field there that I, I realized that I liked being in charge and I liked being in charge of them. And that was fun. And as far as what leadership is, I think it's just that ability to, to help a group of people get somewhere. And that could be a long-term, that can be a, you know, long as your career goes, if you have people working for you. And it can be one meeting and one time, you know, at one, maybe a PTA thing or, or a soccer team or for your kids or whatever. It's that one moment, it's a group of people and you're there to help them achieve something and to do something. Okay. Fantastic. And culture is integrated with the, with the role of the leader. What do you see the role of the leader is in establishing, maintaining culture? I mean, yeah. So culture is a couple of things. It's the norms, uh, on how you get things done. I mean, if you think about, you know, what is it like if you show up to a, your kid's sports teams, how does that operate, right? What are those little kind of norms that may happen? Or what is it like in your company when you, you get together? There are these little particular things that happen or don't happen, and that's partly culture. And, and the second part of culture is permission. You have been granted permission to do this thing, to get this thing done, so if you take the norms and the permission, that pretty much sums up most of the interactions around culture. So it's the leader's job to make sure that people understand that. They understand to the fullest extent what, their, what the norms are, what their permissions are, what they can do, and ensure that they help them remove roadblocks and empower or you know, create new norms or new sets of permissions for them to, to get their jobs done. Yeah, that's great. And you did a lot of research for this book. What was one of the most surprising things that you came across in your research? Yeah, um, so I, this is going to sound silly, but I had an idea of what I thought this stuff was. And I had come up with sort of my own 
hypothesis, right? And I really went out there to go prove or disprove myself. And there was a few instances where things I thought, I, I found research that kind of really countered that. And so I dropped that part and, and found new things. But I was really surprised that at that point, the four years of conversations I'd had on my podcast had really told me a story about what I thought the best organizations were doing. And to go out there and be able to find concrete data and real, you know, studies and stories and, and case studies that actually backed it up and to where I didn't have to fundamentally, you know, make a left turn. I didn't have to like completely change what I was doing that I was on the right track I was a little surprising. Um, just that I'm not a researcher, right? I'm not an academic in this. And so to kind of have that experience like, yeah, oh, okay, I was right. And here's the data and here's, here's these great stories and, and examples. That was really great. Yeah, that's good. It's good to nice to know that your hypotheses were validated by other people's experiences. <laughs> in your book, you talk about what are the core elements of a, of a healthy culture. And a bad culture, everyone knows. Everyone I've spoken to is like, I want to ask them, have you been ever been in a toxic environment and hands go up all the time? So people know what it feels like and they know that it's not great. I'm wondering if there's anything else apart from not having the ingredients of a good culture that creates a bad culture. Yeah. So, you know, there's a difference between a bad culture and let's say an ugly culture. So you sort of started alluding to it's a really ugly, right? If it's toxic, if there's bullying going on, I mean, that kind of stuff is just unexcusable. And I, and I suggest people get out of those jobs as quickly as they can. Now, a bad culture is, is maybe not necessarily toxic, but no one's trying to bring people down on purpose. But despite their best intentions, they have created an environment that just is not great to work in. And I often see that around the rules that they put in place. So here's what happens. We, we Something bad happens, something that we didn't expect to happen or something that annoys the boss or the leadership. And they create a rule to make sure that that thing doesn't happen anymore. So here's a good example. Someone comes in and wears an outfit that's not really appropriate for work, right? And so instead, they create a 19-page addition to the world book the, in the employee handbook on exactly what you have to wear and exactly how you're supposed to dress. And they create all of these rules right, to conform and control everyone. And I find that that is a pretty good example of an ugly culture, right? Because it, you're very thin idea of what someone should wear or not wear. Uh, and then it becomes very archaic, you know, in, in pretty short time, it, it doesn't really match what's going on and what's accepted in business culture or fashion or whatever. If you look at an organization like General Motors, their dress code is two words long, dress appropriately. It's very clear, right? And people can dress how they want. They're not being told they have, can only have one set of earrings. And I mean, like Disney, you have to wear, you must wear underwear. You can only have one set of earrings in. You can, Disney has a very, 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 really? oh, they, it is intense. Their dress code li literally is like 19 pages long. I mean, it is really, really intense. And there are some really good things about Disney's culture, but that one I take issue with. They are very, very specific. But General Motors says dress appropriately. Now, General Motors doesn't have people dressing in costumes, and then Disney can certainly probably would argue with me they have some other things to deal with. But, you know, General Motors takes that approach to say, we know when it's not appropriate. It's obvious when you walk in the door, if you don't fulfill that, but it's a two-word code. And so it allows people the freedom, the autonomy to be able to meet those norms, to meet that those rules without it being sort of, 
crushing them down, right? And putting them into some tiny little hole. Mm. Well, I guess it's the difference between being prescriptive and allowing for judgment. And I'm wondering about that too, because having a two word policy assumes that people have the judgment to make that call. And in different organizations, I've listened to the leaders talk about the dress code as an example, where their younger staff come in and they don't know what is appropriate. They really don't until they're given that feedback. Is your point then is it's not about then creating rule. It's about giving appropriate feedback around that and helping them develop judgment. Exactly. And having good organizations have those conversations They talk about it. They might coach that person. They might realize that person doesn't have the money or the opportunity to go buy a bunch of clothes, right? There could be a reason why they're not dressing the way they want them to dress. And so there's a, there's a whole conversation around that. And so a bad organization or an ugly culture, or let's say a bad culture, would just make a bunch of rules and then the problem to be solved, where a good culture is going to have a conversation, they're going to coach them, they're going to explain to them why this is important and what's appropriate and what's not. And then to your point, if people have this exercise of having to think for themselves and have those conversations, then they're going to be able to make much better decisions later on for you. When it's, again, the next thing that you don't have a 19-page you know, set of rules about. And so we want people thinking. We want them to get in the, used to figuring out what is in line with my culture and what's not, instead of why should just go back and look at the rule book. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I worked for Outward Bound. And uh, when I first started there, that was in 1996, dog's age ago, <laughs> we were given issued these policy books. And there was uh, these little booklets that were um, policies, like rules and guidelines. So it had definitely rules, like you must do this, and then guidelines for every single activity that we did. So we had like 13 books worth of policies and procedures that we needed to follow. And I remember thinking like, holy cow, how am I going to remember all this? And the second thing is they were trying to troubleshoot, I guess, risk around that because, I mean, these are all outdoor activities with kids. You didn't want necessarily people making it up, uh, you know, just make up knots on a, a rock face and so on. But I think it went too far the other way, like what you're talking about, the 19 rules for dress, and that some of the policy guidelines were a little bit too prescriptive and the need to control people's behavior really undid the culture in, in some instances, for sure. And when you are controlling people to that level, what I find is they revert to being teenagers. And what I mean by that is they become passive aggressive. So they find (laughs) ways to meet your expectations, but find a way to flaunt the rule at the same time, right? They start doing things that, but if you give them the opportunity to do it themselves, give them a clear guideline without controlling them, you find that they rise up and become adults in the situation you treated me like an adult, you give me a clear guideline that I can, I can handle, I'm going to show up and, and do it the right way because I'm, an, I'm a responsible person. And so we get two different reactions there. But it, it happens all the time. Just some, one person screws it up. One person goes off the deep end. It, we, what we should do is fire them and get rid of that person. That person doesn't belong here if they don't get it. Instead of creating a 19-page policy that now impacts everyone because we had one jerk in the organization for a while. Yeah, yeah. I love it. One of the surprising things I found in your book was this idea of transparency around financials. And I was like, really? What does that specifically mean? Does it mean salaries or does it mean budget or outcomes? Uh, so that's part one. So like, clarify what you mean by transparency around financials. And does it ever backfire is the second part. Yeah, so there are examples of, and in fact, I'm blanking on the name, but I believe it's an Australian company that was the first to do this that actually publishes all of their 
salary information for all of their employees. And their argument was, the only reason we would be we would not do this is if for some reason we were ashamed about how we were paying our people. And so, you know, if you weren't paying women and men equally, if you were overpaying a particular group and underpaying another or whatever it may be, of course you'd want to keep that secret. Now, I will say for my organization, we, and especially being in America, we've never quite gotten that comfortable to actually show everyone everyone's salaries and what we make. But aside from that, we are 100% transparent with everything else that we can be around our financials. So every month we, we share our financials with the entire organization. We provide financial um, sort of education for people because not, you know, most people have not looked at a P&L and even if they have, they may not understand what the heck it means. Oh, that's nice. And so we talk to our people about what does this mean? How does this compare to years past? Give them some perspective. You know, maybe we lost money this month, but maybe we always lose money in January. Maybe there's a reason for that or, you know, and so um, given that perspective, but what we find is that, so the executive team spends a lot of time on that report. We give the company an overview every month and we invite any and all questions in a public forum that they would like, or they're welcome to schedule a call with me privately if they have a question or concern. But then we ask each department to go back with that information and really talk about that the expenses that impact there or are under their uh, department's umbrella. And what I have found by doing this is I get have gotten the best ideas and my people are running around all the time finding ways to save us money because they know where we're spending the money. Years ago, I was the only one that ever looked at that report. And I was the only one thinking about how to save money because they didn't have any clarity. They didn't know where we were spending our money. And again, this is treating them like adults because I'm giving them adult information. I mean, adult conversation about how we spend our money instead of treating them like children that they don't get to know, they're actively thinking about how can I help? How can we get that number to be smaller next month? And, and so it's had a gigantic impact on our organization. Wow. Well, that's, yeah, that's getting me thinking. I'm like, well, I'd probably do that with my team. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And I guess the question about sharing people's salaries is an interesting one. I mean, money is such a big taboo and it exists here in Australia as well. Like you just don't talk about how much you earn. It's, it's, right. um, it's considered impolite, except in certain circles. So I have a community of professionals where we openly share our financials with each other. And there's no drama around that. It's more an indication of how you're doing in your enterprise, right. as opposed to how much esteem you hold yourself. Right. Which I think is what the taboo is about in both American yeah. culture and Australian culture, because we link our worth with our salary for some reason. I have a question about measurement as well, especially when it comes to culture. And that's another component in your book. What is your insight around measuring culture? Can you do it? And how can you do it if you do do it? There's lots of ways to measure culture. And I'll give you two easy ones to start with. First of all, we have a recognition program that is completely run by our team, by our employees. So we do what's called a green flag. We all use Slack because we're remote. And they all go in there and give each other green flags and a thank you when someone did something to help them or they noticed they did something good. And it is intentionally done by employees. In fact, I even coach my managers to do it less than, than the employees do it. 
because we don't want it to be top down. We don't want it to be waiting around for the manager to notice the employee and then that's how the, the recognition occurs. And because it's not bringing people up on a stage to thank them, because most of my company are a bunch of introverts, I would love being up on a stage. Most of my rest of my team would hide under the stage uh, <laughs> in that situation. So th it's a pretty safe environment for them to get a nice little green flag and to get a mention and they don't have to be standing in front of a group of people. The only thing we use that for other than their own recognition is we do notice kind of how much of that is going on every day or every week or every month. And we can tell if there's sort of a dip if we're noticing there's not quite that activity of thanking each other, that there might be something else going on and we can start asking questions around that. And usually the biggest one is because they're stressed. If they're too busy and they have too much work and we know there's stress in the organization and they don't have the time to go back and say thank you like they should. And so it's sometimes just a matter of reminding them. Sometimes it's a matter of having those open conversations with people. I mean, You'd be surprised, but I had a conversation the other day with someone and I looked it up and I said, you haven't taken a vacation in over a year. Like, you're stressed out. Mm. And they were like, well, you know, and they, and they had had like a couple of promotions. And so like, they were kind of like in new roles, you know, in, the, in that same year. And I said, you know, I need you to tell me when you're going on vacation in the next three months. And you, you got a week to figure it out. <laughs> I don't care <laughs> to stay home, but you got to go you know, and, yeah. and got to have that conversation because they were getting stressed out and they weren't ever thanking anyone. They kind of were getting short with people sometimes and that wasn't their nature normally, but they were, you know, we all get burned out. We all get a little tired. That's an interesting concept. So you've worked out that, that the green flags are lead indicators for health or problems in the culture. Yeah. How did you work that out? Was it like a gut instinct thing or did you just have a hypothesis around it? I think probably what happened is it was going good and then it stopped going good. And then we started asking questions and we realized it was sort of an indicator of stress or an indicator yeah. of workload. Um, you know, there's other times when we notice it goes down, but it's like, you know, the holidays, it's near, you know, Christmas and New Year's. And so we're not as busy and people just aren't doing as much. So that's okay when it's the, those types of situations. You know, we noticed this last year during uh, July. And what we figured out was we had too many people had taken their vacations in July and we had too few people working and they were all stressed out. And so we went, just went back to have a conversation with everyone because we don't, they have to um, let their manager know when their vacation is, but we don't make them get approval from their manager specifically. They go back to their team and say, I'm thinking about taking a vacation here. And they talk about it with their team. Because that's who's impacted, mm. right? And if their team is cool with it and they work it out, then they go on vacation, right? And then they just let us know when they're going to be gone because it's up to their team to have to cover them when they're gone. And too many people had convinced their team it would be okay and they were a little stressed this last July. So, you know, they've realized that and they realize they're going to have to, they really can't have more than two people gone at the same time. Um, and so, again, in an adult conversation, they worked it out. It wasn't some leader creating some policy saying, you cannot have more than one person gone unless your vacation is, you know, it's, it's just silly. Now, the second thing you can do to measure health is you can get rid of the annual survey. Please, please, please save us all the heartache and the trouble and ditch your annual survey. It is terrible and horrible and everyone hates it. <laughs> and you don't ever really use it anyways, if you think about it. So what we do instead we do a weekly survey of one question only. 
I have a 95% rate of people answering that question. Generally, the only people that don't are sick, on vacation, and the occasional just they forgot, right? But 95% of the time, my employees answer that question every week. Every quarter, I change it. I'm either, it's 100% confidential and everything they tell me, I'm the only one who's going to see it. I may repeat the sediment of, sediment of what they were saying, but I'm not going to say, you know, Tom Jones said this, you know, to the leadership or to their department. The other three or four months, I switch it and I say, everything you say, I'm going to share with everyone in the company. You know, all your input's going to go to everyone so, it, so we can have a conversation about it. And it, I find it's really good to go back and forth because there are different issues that need confidentiality and there's different issues where you need to get it out on the table for everyone to, to know what's, how everyone's feeling and talk about it. But we ask those one question and in one question, I can see what they're thinking. I can make changes, address it, call a meeting and usually within a week or two, come back to them with a solution or praise or fix or whatever it is to whatever is happening in their world. I probably don't do it every week, maybe 48 to probably 48 weeks out of the year, we probably do it. And so I'm getting 48 questions answered a year and I'm making 48 small adjustments instead of getting one giant report and trying to figure out how the heck do I make that this big of a change instead of an organization. Yeah, that's really interesting. I like the way that you vary it, you know, some confidential and sometimes not. And the one question sort of pulse insight, I think that's really useful. What do you think about, and I just read an article, my, one of my clients forwarded me this article about the value of anonymous feedback. And well, I have my own opinion on that, but I wanted to get yours. Like, do you advocate for anonymous feedback? Yes or no, and why? Yeah, I think it's just like what I said before. There is a time for anonymous feedback and there is a time for when you need to put your name on it. Um, I think both are valuable and it does depend on the situation. So you know, if your team's really, really big, I think it's a little bit harder. I mean, we've done like 360s, which technically are anonymous, Yeah. but you've got four or five people on your team, then you kind of, it's not that hard to figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's never, that's not anonymous for sure. Right. I mean, it's kind of anonymous, but yeah, you can kind of figure it out. So, you know, it just depends. I think anonymous is good if it's someone from the outside asking if you're trying to make sure that your managers are are doing the job you think they're doing, or if you have a concern, there could be something going on. I, I do see a value in anonymous that, that the employee can, can say, I'm being bullied, or there's a problem here, or I think that some sort of a harassment is occurring. I mean, if you think there's a problem, that anonymous can really be helpful because people may not ever be willing to raise their hand if they think there's going to be retribution to that. But if you're talking about just that regular cadence, but things are good and you're just trying to get better, I think it should be open and honest and, and you should have a, a culture where some bit of confrontation and disagreement is okay. Thank you for that distinction. That really helped fine tune my perspective because I was willing to like shut down the whole anonymous feedback as a symptom of an unhealthy culture. But if you put it in the context where, yeah, there's some situations which have ramifications associated with them when it comes to power and all that kind of stuff. I think that's good to keep in mind. So thank you yeah. for that. That's that's really helpful. Another sort of tricky one that comes up with culture all the time is incentives. Uh, that's the reward piece. So recognition is one side of things, which is your green right. flag kind of like let's acknowledge each other, either peer to peer or manager to and vice versa. But reward is different. That's like getting a tangible extrinsic 
compensation for effort. What's your experience and insight around the value of that? Well, if anyone wants to watch a really cool video on this topic, I mean, Daniel Pink's got a great one. I have it on my my careers page, uh, peopleg2.com slash careers. Or you can look up Daniel Pink RSA video on YouTube or whatever. But the research says that if a if you're asking people to do a pick up a rock and move it over here, right? To move this pile of rocks from here to there, that incentive-based things will work up to a certain point. There's some limit to how fast you can go as a human being, right? But you will go faster moving that pile of rocks or putting those things on the assembly line or whatever it may be that's more of a very physical, that there is a benefit to incentive-based rewards. But as soon as you have a cognitive uh, based thing inside of that, if you are asking people to think strategically or to come up with good ideas, or they have to, part of what they're doing is to figure things out, and now you're adding an incentive in there, then you actually they perform worse. And so the research says what you need to do is pay them enough that you're taking pay off the table. Right? They're not worried about you know, some Maslow's hierarchy of needs, or they're not worried about putting food on their table, they have their job, they know what they're gonna make, and you remove that from the equation, instead set goals and have other types of things that are not incentive-based, they do much better. I will say, and I don't know, we've never been able to specifically figure this out, salespeople do seem to be somewhat wired slightly differently and or at least consistently expect to have monetary-based incentives, but I will say, we do a lot to uncouple that from them specifically. There is a certain amount that is connected to them, but a lot of it we try to make team-based to take some of that out of there, to kind of remove some of that uh, stuff. And what we find, again, is that they do, when the goals are more towards the team, they meet their goals far and away much better than they do when it's all completely individual-based goals that are somehow tied to an incentive for them. So let me just check that I've understood this correctly. So you make team-based rewards and goals and that as part of the team, their effort gets measured in that. So is there individual measurement or is there team measurement? Yeah, they have both because they have consistently, as salespeople, consistently advocated for that and did not want that taken away from them. Yeah. However, we modified. So instead of it being a comp- 100% of, let's say, their commission being completely based on their effort only, yeah. it's half of their efforts and half of what, how their team does overall. And just in that one switch and going to this half and half, their team and individually, they beat their quotas by 40% last year. So whereas years before, they were right on quota, maybe 10% over. And so we'll see if, again, this year that happens, if that, you know, the result is, again, above and beyond, but removing some of that pressure on them, right, to have to do it themselves, and that incentive is totally based on all these cognitive decisions they're making, seem to help. That's fantastic. I think that's probably, uh, that feels like a massive breakthrough idea for me, because I've always wondered about that, knowing the research that uh, Dan Pink did in his book Drive around that, you know, that um, the cognitive the cognitive task rewarded externally detracts from the enjoyment of them, let alone the performance of them. Because I've worked with people who want, who are sales oriented and they really, they thrive on that competitive thing. And I was always worried about that skewing A, their ethics and B, their tunnel vision and turn silos. But that's a really nice 
way of overcoming both those things, you know, so that you can't be just a lone wolf. You actually have to be a team player. And uh, so it taps into both. Oh, that's, thank you. That was, that's kind of like a ta-da moment. And and you're right. The competitive part is the big part. And that's what we're trying to emphasize the competition more than we're emphasizing. You need to do more of this to make more money. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Okay. That was, uh, yeah, that was really cool. So one final question for you. Effective listening is something that you mentioned as well. And I think it is a cornerstone of so many important things in leadership and in culture. What are your top three tips for effective listening? Well, there's a few. So I I guess we'll give you three. So um, first thing is to be, uh, make sure you are actively listening. What I mean by that is I realized I was a bad listener uh, when I read the book, Just Listen by Mark Golston. And it talks about when you're listening to someone in a conversation, if they say something and immediately your brain is down a rabbit hole. I've given this example. I had one time at a party in my house or watching a, a game on TV. And one friend said to me, yeah, we're going up to camping in Yosemite, which is a not everyone listening may know Yosemite, but it's a famous national park here in the United States. And he said, we're going to go camping in Yosemite. And my other friend immediately, like, he's interrupting him. He wants to talk about camping and what sleeping bag they use and what tent do they use and all camping, camping, camping. But my first friend is using camping as the introduction to the context of what he really wants to talk about. And after I got my other friend to shut up, I got down to realize what he was trying to tell us was, He's worried about being alone with his family for 10 days in Yosemite with no internet, no phone, because it doesn't work there, right? What in the heck are the kids going to do? Because they're used to playing video games. And so really the conversation was, is, am I going to survive 10 days with my kids and my wife with no internet, given this modern age we live in, right, of being able to be distracted at any moment? What am I going to do? And that was really what he wanted to talk about. And so when we are passively listening and we hear a detail and we immediately want to make that, oh, I know about that. And we want to then tell everyone and we're just kind of waiting for them to shut up so we can tell them the three things that cool, the cool things and, and tell them how smart we are. We're doing a terrible disservice in that conversation. So I promise you, if you slow down and you just actively listen and don't listen to respond, you will remember all the cool things you wanted to say if they still align once that person's done actually telling you what they want to tell you. And that is the first step into really becoming a better listener. The second thing is once you think you understand what that person's saying, it's really important that they understand that they are being heard. So it's sort of a weird thing to say, but to be a good listener, the other person has to feel heard. And that is an activity only you can make sure is happening. Yes, we can make eye contact. Yes, we can nod if we're physically in front of them, but we can't always do those things on the phone or in other contexts. So I have found the most effective way to make sure that you are understanding the person, this is still actively listening, and ensuring that they feel heard, is to use this technique called three plus. Three plus is to repeat back what you heard to them at least three times in three different ways. And in in very short order, and to get them to say yes or agree that yet you are saying it correctly. And this works. You ever have someone come in your office hot because they're upset that someone did something or something went wrong? Man, you do this and you find out real quick 
that they don't even understand exactly why they're mad. They haven't even articulated it correctly because when they hear it back from you, they realize, well, that's not exactly. So an example might be, so what I'm hearing is that you're worried about being with your wife and kids on vacation. And then I say, well, yeah, but that's not exactly what I'm worried about. I'm worried about there's no technology. We're not going to have any Wi-Fi. Okay, so you're saying you're worried about that they're not going to have their phones and their devices and all of that. And, and he said, well, yeah, but then and he said, I'm really worried about it. It's like, what are we going to do? Right? And so in three, kind of changing it back to him, the real answer was, the real question was, what are we going to do all day for 10 days? Yeah. Right? It wasn't as terrible as it sounded that I'm worried about hanging out with my family for 10 days. It's really, what are we going to do? And so then we, as his friends, could make several suggestions on what, how he might think about filling up that time with activities and things that may help him. But I had to three plus with him. I had to tell him what I was hearing and get him to tell me yes or no, that was correct before we moved on to the next thing. And that's really hard to do because we want to solve their problem right away. We want to tell them all the smart things we know. We want to, you know, maybe make them laugh if it's an uncomfortable situation instead of just sitting in it for a moment. And then the third thing that is super important is to remove distractions. So if somebody wants to have a conversation with you, put away your phone face down or put it in your pocket. If you have an iWatch, don't have it every time it buzzes, you you're, look at your watch and you're not paying attention. Meet in a quiet place, not in a busy cafe, not where in your office where everyone's going to keep coming and interrupting you. Be somewhere where the distractions and the noise level is at least far enough you know, suppressed that you can really listen, that you're not going to be distracted, they're not going to be distracted, and you can give them your full attention. And you will find just that small tweak. You can do even just one of these three things. And if you do three, all three of these things, you will be a powerhouse listener. Okay, that's awesome. I like the three plus tip. I think that's a that's a really good one because you're right. If somebody's flustered around something and they may not have distilled it down to the core essence of what's going on. Right. Chris, you're full of rich information and experience. Where can people find out more? Um, happy to have you go to my website, Chris and the letter P uh, dot com, Chris P Dyer dot com. You can also find me on LinkedIn, uh, Chris Dyer. Connect with me there or on Twitter, Chris P. Dyer. You know, wherever you want to find me, I'm happy to connect. And um, but we do lots of stuff and webinars and things like that on the, you go to my website and sign up there to uh, make sure you get put, you know, alerted to all that stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for um, finding time in your schedule. I know you've got a, a busy day on. I really appreciate it and sharing all the valuable insights in your, in your book. Good luck with the next one. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Wow, that was a really interesting conversation. I loved Chris's insights. The three takeaways for me, I think, were, well, the top one is, you could probably hear the penny drop, is when he said that he's discovered that salespeople are wired differently. And I think that's so great. And the next thing was that you need to incentivize salespeople. You have to have individual rewards as well as team rewards. And the 50-50 split was such a great strategy to help deal with all that. So fantastic. Uh, the other takeaway was the three plus technique for active listening. Really good one. So keep paraphrasing until you go, yep, absolutely, that's it. And the third one was transparency of financials for the whole team uh, as a way of getting them interested in and in financial management. And also couple that with financial education for your team members. Brilliant, brilliant insights. Loved it. And 
One of the things you may or may not know about me is in my work that I do is that I work on the people stuffing cultures. And if you are a leader and you're looking to improve your culture, I'd love to have a chat with you. We can do a strategy session on your culture competencies if you're interested in that. So what that means is I send you an assessment and then we talk through it on the phone about where you're strong and where you could improve and how I might help you out with that. Reach out if you're interested, zoe at intercompass.com.au. In the meantime, live well, lead well.